Welcome to the Founder and Funder Experience, brought to you by Format One. This podcast serves to bring to light the different journeys select founders and funders took to get to where they are today. We hope their lives and their learnings continue to inspire both present and future innovators. Hello, everybody. This is Arjun Devarara. I'm the founder and managing partner of Format One. We help support funds and founders and help accelerate their efforts via people, capital, and strategy. And now off to John. Hi, John Liu here, co-founder and uh, partner at Format One. I'm the lead on executive coaching, collaborating with Arjun Dave Aurora, but enough about us. Um, today's guest is the lovely Hiten Cha. And um, Hiten, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you've been up to? Yeah, um, I, I, I uh, am probably most known for building a bunch of different software companies. Uh, a couple of them have been in the analytics space, and I started the first one in 2005. It's called Crazy Egg. Uh, it creates heat maps for where people are clicking on a page, so it gives you a visual representation of kind of analytics data. We were one of the first companies to do that back in the day. It's a self-funded company and still around. And then I started a company called Kiss Metrics back in 2008, uh, and that one had a, a lovely kind of funded uh, venture, kind of funded journey, and I learned a lot of stuff there. And then I, I kind of took a break for a little bit ended up investing in about now 150 companies and counting. Uh, and then I, uh, d- during that process, I met my co-founder for my new company called FYI. And what we do is we help uh, people find their documents in three clicks or less. Uh, and we also help IT teams kind of manage the mess. Wow, what an extensive career in zero entrepreneurship. So did you always know you wanted to start a business, Ethan, um, you know, before college, straight into college, straight out of college? Like, how did you get the bug, so to speak? Yeah, uh, I, I, I get to blame my dad. Um, he, he told me, uh, he's a physician, and he told me since I was five years old that uh, I should be an entrepreneur and uh, work for myself. And uh, that's not something you would typically hear a South Asian father who's a physician say. He'd usually say, hey, go become a doctor like me and go join my practice. Well, my dad didn't have a practice, so that helped. Uh, but he just told me that since I was five. I think he has he has his own reasons for telling me that uh, that are personal to him. Like, uh, I think he wanted to be an entrepreneur. But uh, in school, uh, back in back in India, when he was in school, he, he like kind of hit the borderline of uh, kind of uh, general or go into the track of like, uh, becoming a doctor and nobody in his family had been a doctor until then. And so he was sort of, uh, it was like a, by default, I'm going to be a doctor if I get this grade or score on, on some specific test in school. And so he didn't get the opportunity to kind of go figure out if he could be a business person and work for himself. And I think that that's something that he, he held pretty, pretty close, uh, and kind of gave me the advice to, uh, to do that. So he's lived vicariously through me since, uh, I was, five years old, because I've, I've never worked for anyone uh, except once, which was a, a internship at a medical devices in high school uh, and medical devices company. And the company's called Massimo. They're a public company now. And my, my dad actually had pre-IPO stock and stuff that I stole from him. So yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Even entrepreneur when you're an intern. Yeah, internship. Well, they're they're a public company now. They're 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 doing really well. But like one of the funny things is I actually I, I believe I took the uh company picture uh back then when they were pretty tidy uh compared to where they are now. Uh so that's my claim to fame with that company. So. Wow, that's nice. incredible. And Hidden, did you did you grow up in the Bay? Like you mentioned your dad kind of 
migrated at some stage like yeah. or did, were you so born I in was, India? I was actually born in Africa, uh, Zambia. Uh, and uh, my parents had moved there from India. And then we moved to New York when I was five. Uh, and then right around the time I was 12, we moved to Southern California and that's where I grew up. And then uh, I went to Cal, uh, UC Berkeley. And then I actually moved back down uh, to Southern California before moving back up here uh, to the Bay Area, which is where I live now. Wow. Zambia, amazing. Um, do, do you do you have much of a connection with the place or, you know, you only like, with, for with, like four with, years with Africa? With, with Africa? No, I don't, yeah. I don't remember much at all. Uh, okay. I remember beets, the smell and taste of beets, believe it or not, the, the vegetable, uh, yeah. and, and a lion in our backyard and some vague memories of the school. That, that's about as far as I get. And I, I haven't been back. My dad's been back, but I haven't been back. Uh, do you want to go or, I mean, uh, I, I, I don't, I don't really have a strong desire to travel already anyway. So no, 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 no real draw at the moment. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, hidden, you know, you mentioned something really interesting. You like started the first, if not one of the first, um, kind of analytics businesses yeah. and it, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was crazy eggs, was it? Or Yeah. It was called crazy egg. Yeah. Yeah. And it was that wasn't venture backed, right? That was just that was no, you and, it, and, right. and it still isn't, and it still exists. So, and my my oh. wife actually runs it. Wow, amazing! Yeah, tell us a bit about you know, <clears throat> you know this idea, this experience for you of being the first, because now when people talk about data analytics, everyone's like, oh, of course, like <laughs> why wouldn't you have it, right? But back then, you know, back then technology was at a specific state uh, stage. Um, how people worked professionally to 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 perform, so to speak, um, in different functions of business was very different. You know, while people might you might still have had data driven people, right? Yeah. Uh, the meaning of data driven had an entirely different meaning back then to what it is today. Yep. Can you kind of paint a bit about that context and what, yeah, uh, what really well, spiked your idea to, to, hey, the time is now, let's create this? Yeah, what, what was going on back then was like there, there were analytics tools that were pretty uh, lightweight and not in a way that was easy to understand, even though they were lightweight. And what that really meant at that time was everything had graphs, charts, and numbers. And there were so many people that were trying to improve their websites that didn't care to understand what a bounce rate is or like how many pages page views they got or anything like that. And what they really cared about was like, what are people doing on the site once they get there? And they had no way of really understanding that in a way that they could like instantly sort of understand it and then make a decision or make an improvement. So as a result of that, we started playing around with this idea of being able to show every click on a web page that a person does or that people do, uh, and then just focus on different web pages and showing you kind of what 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 it looks like, uh, what the traffic looks like, and so you can see hot spots and cold spots with the product. Uh, and it it really was a different way to do analytics and what people were doing at the time, uh, where that was just so focused on charts and numbers and graphs and stuff. And we actually for the longest time have had no graphs and charts in the product. And still, I don't think we have like a tremendous amount or anything significant like you would see in most analytics products. So we kind of changed uh, or helped change uh, how people think about analytics going from like, oh, it's not approachable to me to, oh, I can I can actually use this kind of technology and, and get something out of it. So I would say that like, we really helped make it a lot more easy to understand what's going on and obviously that concept has been uh, kind of popularized since then and uh, a lot more products have kind of heat maps and things like that.
Oh, amazing. Yeah, I kind of think back to your point. Um, like back then, the users of a website could be businesses of any scale of sophistication. Yep. And unless you're a super sophisticated user, you're not going <laughs> to look at charts and graphs and ratios and be like, oh, I totally get this. Um, yep. But since then, since, you know, Crazy Egg obviously is a mature company now of its own, you eventually went on to Kiss Metrics. Did you apply a similar philosophy to kind of identify more white space for analytics or did, did you realize, did you want to do something entirely, you know, new and revolutionary? Yeah, we, we, we tried there to do a few different attempts at it. Um, we actually started at a time around 2008, 2009, when uh, Facebook applications were a big deal. And so as we were observing kind of the world at Crazy Egg, we noticed that there's just a new kind of sort of uh, entrant in terms of the type of person that wants to understand analytics. And at that time, these were a lot of folks that were like relatively young coming out of college or even still in college in a lot of cases, building these Facebook applications and sort of painstakingly trying to uh, understand the data uh, that was coming from Facebook uh, about their applications. And so we started exploring that. And then we realized really quickly that those people just need ad tools to make money uh, and didn't really care about analytics and were happy to go roll their own because they were engineers for the most part. And so we kind of went into something a lot broader and uh, started implementing our analytics tool that we were building uh, at different sort of uh, organizations, including TechCrunch, where they were kind of using uh, our tool to measure uh, different authors and the effectiveness of their posts and stuff like that, which was very kind of challenging to do in Google Analytics and other tools. And through that process, we learned something very uh, significant, which is uh, uh, maybe we learned it twice, but basically ad-based businesses and models like that uh, and generic analytics tools are just really tough to kind of scale and grow. And so we went back to kind of our roots, so to speak, and looked at Google Analytics a lot deeply, a lot more deeply and started talking to a lot more people. Uh, uh, and, and it turns out that there are marketers at the time, and this was about 2010, 2009, 2010. Uh, there are marketers that were out there that were really looking to connect the fact that someone's a visitor and then when they come to their site and they purchase or they sign up uh, you want to know as much as you can about them before they kind of signed up as well as after and this was something that google analytics still today does not do they do not let you put in and add in like email addresses so you can kind of see an individual customer's journey or oh, a group of anything. customers journey accurately and so and then on top of the the kind of let's say the data and tracking issue uh, which I can dive into a lot deeper, but it, it gets pretty technical uh, pretty fast. But basically, we were just able to show the whole customer journey from before they signed up or purchased till after. We basically realized that a, a feature in Google Analytics that was also weak uh, was funnels. And so we, we built a funnel tool that uh, shows funnels that are left to right, not top to bottom. So a lot of analytics tools before we came around would show the funnel top to bottom. And it was good. It looked nice. It looked pretty but it wasn't as usable when you started wanting to see, well, I want to see that funnel by uh, the people that come from Facebook versus the people that come from Google. And you can't really do that really easily, especially if you have like 10 or 20 different comparisons you want to do. So our left to right funnel had, had it so that you could see the data below it. And the reason I'm mentioning all this is one of the commonalities that sort of between Crazy Egg and Kissmetrics uh, that sort of I accidentally find myself in is basically this idea that we sort of, the way we build our organization is to hunt for a problem worth solving. 
and then solve it better than anything else on the market. And in both those instances, the feature set that we built and the little little differences that we built, whether it's the tracking differences or the visualization ones in both cases between a heat map and a funnel, they end up getting uh, embedded in other products because they're just that good of a difference between how it was done before and how it's done after we kind of figure that out. And so now if you look at the funnels and a lot of popular analytics tools, even Google Analytics now, they have the same views in the same layout and style that we had invented back then that didn't exist until we sort of started poking around and solving kind of the problems that we discovered. So, you know, uh, I think for me, that experience of both those companies really shaped how I think about building the organization around me, uh, working with people to kind of make sure that like, if we discover something, we're doing our best to make sure that we're the ones that get more benefit than we did at uh, Crazy Egg and Kissmetrics from it because you know, back then, even with both those companies, I don't think I personally and even the team realized like how impactful our discoveries were uh, and our solutions to kind of some of these problems. So th this is the kind of stuff that I think about in the back of my head and make sure that like, uh, you know, we're not kind of losing out on some of that scale. Oh, that's amazing. Um, what a unique product mindset you and your team have had through, through the journey. Yeah, it's been interesting. Yeah, again, yeah. here's metrics, yeah. The, um, but more ex even just as exciting as um, FYI, yeah. Like you obviously took some, you know, you know, you you by then you're a well seasoned entrepreneur and you, you took a mindset <clears throat> to develop this new company, FYI. Uh, can you tell us more about how that came to be? Because when I think about um, anything more than three clicks to find a document, I I like I want to throw something at my computer. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> so pretty much. Yeah. it's an emotional <laughs> response. So please, please, please. Yeah, so uh, that one's really interesting. Uh, we actually, we, my co-founder and I, once we met, we we started doing a bunch of consulting. We were even considering starting a fund. And so we were just exploring a lot of things. And then we realized that we just really want to build stuff. Uh, and so we started building a couple different uh, products. One was called Dugo that helped you basically uh, give advice on pitch decks. If you're somebody who's an advisor or something like that, um, there's a company called DocSend. So we had kind of, had some role models out there, but our difference was focused on pitch decks and really focused on the workflow between people who are giving feedback on your pitch deck and you be, being able to see it. For example, you know that whole process is still a little clunky, if not very clunky, uh, but that was also a time when we thought we were gonna build a fund or something like that. And this was gonna be one of the tools that we provide the market. Uh, and so we weren't really trying to charge for it or anything like that. And uh, really quickly, we realized that that's just not a business we wanted to be in for a number of reasons. I think it's, it's still a good business. I still invest personally, but uh, overall, like we, we didn't want to get into the business of having a fund and doing it for 10 or 15 years when I think we really just like building businesses and software. Um, so we, we basically started building a second product uh, that I still get a lot of uh, flack for uh, because I said, we can just copy and paste Dugo and build the second thing. It turns out like, you know, that's, that's never, you know, uh, that's, it's never as simple as it's described. Uh, and so we took the code, copy and pasted it, and then built this thing called DraftSend, where you could upload a PDF and then you could kind of uh, record audio. And we're not, we didn't, we don't create a video, but it feels like a video because as you're moving the slides, audio is going and there's a lower bandwidth and all kinds of other stuff with it. It had a really great launch on uh, product hunt, uh, where a lot of people launch products uh, and, uh, you know, and then it flopped basically because it, it was a product that we would have to 
narrow down to like sales or marketing or customer support use cases in order to make it kind of work. And we really wanted to build a much more broader uh, product at the time. Uh, and so as we were building that, we kind of took a massive kind of step back and said, well, like, what are we missing here? Like, we, we really like the space of like documents and doing things with them. Uh, and, and so we just stepped back and asked people, what's their number one challenge when it comes to uh, sort of uh, creating and sharing documents? And it turns out the number one challenge is finding them because now there's so many different tools that you need to go find them in. And so that was like uh, the first aha moment for this business. Uh, and then uh, really quickly, just based on past experience and having failed a couple of times with my current co-founder, Marie, uh, we decided to build something really fast. So we had what we call a five-day MVP of what is the obvious solution to the problem of finding documents across tools, which is a service that connects to a bunch of tools and it gives you a search box and lets you find those documents. Uh, and you can just type it in the search box. And uh, the reason we did that is because everything that was before us uh, to solve that problem was called kind of an enterprise search tool. And it implied that you had to search. And so we were like, well, all those things have failed in one way or another. And they have not scaled. And there isn't like a ubiquitous, this is the enterprise search tool everyone uses. And so we wanted to really figure out why. And what it turns out is like, people just don't want to, type in a search box to find documents. And more importantly than they don't want to, they don't do it. That's the bigger problem, whether they want to or not. And so what they do is they go ask their coworkers or whoever shared it with them or whoever they remember was on the document to help them find the document. They're usually doing that in Slack or via email or even like on calls like this in meetings. Um, and, or they're just like hunting and pecking, basically trying to log into different tools and try to find the document, especially when they're in search of it and can't find it really quickly. And the tools that exist are very focused on helping you create the documents, not find them. They're not really designed for that. A lot of people complain about Google Drive search because, you know, they say Google's a search company, but they can't build a great search for Google Drive. About 70, 80% of people we talk to complain about it. The rest are just like, hey, it's fine. Uh, and they kind of like figure their way, their way around it. And then now there's so many other tools, whether it's tools like uh, Evernote or Notion, or even like companies that use Google, plus they have Atlassian's Confluence and there's Coda and like uh, just countless tools now that you can uh, sort of uh, write content in and that teams are starting to use and companies are using pretty heavily, uh, especially across departments. And then you have even things like Figma, which technically there's design documents in Figma, even though they might not call them documents, uh, they're sitting there too, and you need to find those. So there's this whole like, you know, lots of tools, lots of information in them, and you're, you need to find them, but the search box thing doesn't work. So we basically spent a bunch of time just iterating and trying to figure out what the right solution was. And what we landed on was a uh, Chrome extension that actually is, it's also a full web application, but we put it in a Chrome extension. We open our, our, our sort of uh, view in uh a new tab in Chrome every time you load it. And it's not just a search box. There's a search box at the top and that's like 10% of the real estate, maybe 5% of the real estate. The rest of it is just basically this layout. So uh, uh, on the left side, you have all the different apps that you've connected uh, and you can connect a bunch of different apps. We have about 24 that we support. You can click on them and you can just see a list of all the files in them based on uh, sort of reverse chronological order of which ones have been modified uh, last. And we have like an item detail that tells you the title and who the creator is and an icon to represent where it's from, as well as when it was modified last, how old it is, and all the collaborators on it. And so that piece also goes in the 
sort of main area that we call the activity feed that shows you all the activity across these documents uh, and across these tools of basically who's doing what. And then on the right is one of the most powerful things that we figured out, which is that we can take all the people you collaborate with and put them in the sidebar on the right. So you can click on them and see everything you have shared with them, see everything that they've created as well that you have access to. And this experience is why we say find your documents three clicks or less because 70, 80% of the time when people are trying to find documents, they will find it just by clicking around our interface. They'll see the feed, they'll scroll and they'll click. That's like one click, right? They'll, they'll click on a profile on the right of somebody, click and then see everything that's associated with them, a couple of clicks and they already found the document they need. Or they can go in straight into the app area, click on one of the apps and see all the documents in them and kind of find them that way. And then as a last resort, they can use our search, which is great as well, but we just search titles uh, today and plan on keeping it that way. And then what we learned as we were kind of building all that out and started talking to companies and teams, it turns out that uh, IT teams have similar problems uh, too. So we've been exploring that in the last few months and kind of learning a lot about how IT teams and kind of organizations as a whole treat all these different tools and kind of all the information in them and what, what kind of needs that they have too. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating because I mean, <clears throat> the, I, I also think like for big organizations, you know, um, knowledge sharing and knowledge management is something that, you know, people don't really do that well in some yep. organized way, right? And so it's like you're knocking on that door as well. Um, I just think about big orgs, so like five, five teams are like reinventing the same wheel. <laughs> yeah, we keep hearing that over and over again. And, and it just the problem's kind of getting worse because there's always these new tools that are out there that just keep coming out and then companies do adopt them. A lot of this whole bring your own tool to work uh, and things like that, that those movements are there. And, you know, we're just seeing IT folks actually struggling with a lot of it, especially when it comes to things like compliance and data leaks and document, you know, think about how many times you hear of like a leaked document, right? And things like that. So we're, we're starting to see a lot of like different use cases off of the technology we've built. That's not just for employees that are looking for documents. It's also for kind of the organization as a whole as well. Yeah, fascinating because you know you, you studied org psychology right in college. It was it was organizational and that, behavior. Yeah, yeah, and I mean this, this is uh, yeah. this I is love kind that of stuff like for some reason, yeah. Which is funny because you're doing you know in FYI right now you're getting like like data that's level right. insights into how people behave that's in right. front of their yeah. screen, right? <laughs> that's pretty. That's, that's pretty accurate. Yeah. Yeah, and that the, the uh, kind of soft power networks and kind of more structural organizational dynamics yeah. around how documents are shared and you know where that all lives. I mean, the, the data that you can understand deeply in order to help an organization, you know, yeah, it's funny, understand right? itself like, better is pretty amazing. Yeah, people, yeah. people tend to look at these tools uh, and try to, you know, figure out how to build, you know, like, a, there's a lot of like project management tools and ways to kind of organize all this stuff. But it's, it's very rare that a company has an ability to look at kind of the behavior and see what kind of sharing is going on, what kind of clustering is going on, even things like what department works the most with what other departments. And even down to like different individuals and like how they're working well together uh, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, we do bring a lot of those insights straight straight to you if you kind of sign up for the product and kind of check yeah. it out. So like that's that's definitely like some of the things that we're noticing now. That's it. That's pretty incredible because I think about and maybe you've thought had thoughts around this as well, Heaton, and would love your thoughts and thought leadership about it. But um, you know, now that we're all everyone's mostly working remote and probably even when the economy reopens, uh, it's going to be a higher portion of remote working. 
than not. And to take a pulse point or to get a read on how people are behaving, patterns of behavior within the org, right? The data really sits at the UI, right? What they're doing on their user interface because they're not hanging out at the cooler. Um, they're not, you know, going to Phil's coffee right. because it's the best coffee in the world. Yeah, in San Francisco. But the um, but um, the, what are your thoughts on you know the implications of being able to you know use that data and kind of infer uh, you know state about people? You know, what are they up to? What are they getting hung up on? Or like or giving a, a a visual representation that says. Hey, this whole function is really struggling this week. Can can a manager get in there and just check out what's up? Yeah, you know those are all sort of uh, really interesting things, and I think that like the the solve that we've seen actually doesn't have to do with uh, documents and document behavior as much as it has to do with um, we started interviewing CEOs and, and learned something pretty interesting. We asked them a specific question, which is if we could wave a magic wand. Uh, what, you know, what is the magical solution that you need for kind of your biggest problem? And turns out that the, uh, you know, uh, and, and this will, this will be really fascinating, but like they are looking for a red, yellow, green for every individual and in every individual in the organization, every team and trying to understand that. And they have no ability to do that today. Uh, I don't think this is a problem we're going to solve at FYI anytime soon, but it is the problem that we're seeing uh, they have. And they, their solution is this red, yellow, green thing. Now, if you look at a lot of the project management solutions like Asana or uh, Monday or even things like ClickUp, uh, which is a new entrant in kind of the productivity space, um, they all have red, yellow, green. They're all focused on things like tasks and are really kind of pushing the envelope on sort of uh, getting all that task information across the whole company in their tool so they can show that that's not that's not like the tool we built and you know it's a very different way to kind of solve the problem but it is something that i'm seeing that if a company centralizes on a, on a project management tool they start getting the red yellow greens and, and i think people do get excited by that the biggest problem with that is there's no passive activity that's being uh, sort of feeding into that to help you understand it even more and that's i think something where there, there, there's a lot of implications there uh, that, that I think some are really great, others are terrible. And like companies have kind of tried this, like Microsoft recently tried to provide these kind of insights down to an individual employee. And uh, there was a big stink about it, you know, and people were pretty upset that, you know, there was that level of granularity that they're providing um, just because it was a, a very much an analytics tool, uh, not necessarily a productivity tool. And I think that's that's a line that like, we're not going to kind of cross because what happened is Microsoft had to pull back a lot and not show data on individual people uh, because, and a lot of it is because of how they framed the tool. But if you think about how far that tool got and got to that point of being shipped with those kind of features, there is a high amount of demand for it. It's just that it has this sort of big brother E type feel and people don't like that. I don't, I wouldn't like it either. Right. If it, the concept of it more so than the application, right? So uh, this is a definitely a very interesting category uh, of sort of uh, problem, but I don't think anyone's going to be able to solve it in a way that is, oh, you have all the analytics you need about your team. 
uh, and each individual. I think we're going to solve it in a way that's more like holistic about the company, company performance, OKRs, because there's a bunch of OKRs tools now too that have the red, green, yellow sort of uh, designations. And honestly, like as, as a as a founder and the way I think about the world, I run away when I see like these software, the, the software having the common patterns. Uh, I, I pretty much run away from that just because it means that we're just getting to a commoditized solution to the problem. And I'm always looking for differentiation, uh, especially in the earliest stages uh, before there's like time for exploiting that differentiation. And this differentiation, like if we did a red, yellow, green, and it was passive, and let's say we got past the big brother feel, it would still look like a lot of the other things out there. And that differentiation just wouldn't feel the same. So I love the idea of the amount of data that we have about employees and about collaboration. I think that there are some, some real serious implications, you know, uh, that uh, a lot of people do worry about. And I think rightfully so. Yeah, I think yeah, the, wow. the implication from a product perspective is so structured around this concept of productivity, but so much of our work now and knowledge work is driven more by creativity and a human component, which is so hard to, to measure. And so how do you how do you structurally measure that? Is that possible? What might that look like that's antithetical to the red, yellow, green, or you know, maybe similar, but is it the same? Those are some large <laughs> philosophical questions about the future of knowledge of uh, you know, work, uh, knowledge work, but uh, we shall see how that shakes out. Right, or how does that actually enable benefits to the other side, right? You're getting visibility on employees, right? But how does it create a 10X experience for the employee and what they want to achieve both professionally and personally versus, hey, I'm just <laughs> I'm just trying to get insight into you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's a pretty interesting kind of uh, problem to solve that I think is going to take some time for us. And the issues aren't technical, you know, uh, they're, yeah. they're very societal uh, and individualistic in terms of how people feel when they know these things are being done to them, you know, and, and I think the average person does not appreciate it. And we have a big privacy push in the world right now, right, as well, just because of all the technology and the tracking and like that push is going to continue, especially with antitrust stuff going on and a bunch of class actions that have been either going on or settled and continue to be. So yeah, it, it's it, it's this whole productivity thing and creativity and all this working from home. We're, we're just like, we're just pushed so forward so fast that I think the solutions are kind of they're not even lagging behind. They're trying to get too far ahead, you know, because <laughs> yeah. it's possible. Technically, all these things are possible. But that human element, like you said, is so so important to consider and to be really thoughtful about as as all of these technologies you continue to get built. That's great to hear that you guys are being so thoughtful about this with FYI. Yeah, just got to be careful, especially as a startup too, right? We can't afford a screw up like Microsoft had and then ha and then pull back because that taints our reputation in a way that Microsoft just gets away with it. Yeah, so well said. And, you know, um, it, looking back at 2020 for you and FYI, well, you know, a lot of things raced ahead, um, you know, remote work and all this idea of being able to have that creative flexibility as a kind of a, a working professional, whether geographically or time zone based or country based, right? Um, what were some of the highlights for uh, FYI um, during this year? What were some of probably I would say lower lights that revealed some helpful insights, you know? Yeah, um, we, we were focused on getting sort of uh, certain sort of teams getting like team-wide and company-wide adoption with our tool before March uh, and kind of the, the virus came around. Um, and the conversation completely shifted because the people we were talking to 
had different priorities uh, because they, a lot of them were not working from home. Majority of them were not working from home. Teams were not even allowed to work from home in some cases, just because that was their policy. You had to be in the office to work. Um, and obviously they had meetings set up like that. So the priorities went to dealing with um, working from home and transitioning to it. And that was a major scramble for every company that we saw. And they weren't really buying new tools or even trying to use new tools for that. They were just trying to solve the problems that they had, which was more of like uh, making sure the existing tools they had worked, making sure people had internet and all that, all the stuff that you can imagine. And then on top of that, having to shut down their offices because that's a whole orchestration in itself, especially at larger companies, right? Uh, so all the people, executives, HR, IT, everyone was really focused on that problem. So uh, we, we basically had to stop our conversations on that level. And then what we discovered as we were talking to people and kind of within about a month or two, uh, realized really quickly that like they have new problems. And these new problems have to do with a few really interesting things that we discovered. So one of them, was now that everyone's working from home, more documents are being made, way more, like orders of magnitude more in some companies. Also, another thing is the sharing of documents went from like being locked down in certain companies, like, like you couldn't do external sharing or only certain domains or it needed approval to being completely open. And that means that the employees might not be used to how that works and how that tooling would work. So we just basically started learning that there was a much more interesting problem for us to solve that had to do with visibility as to what's happening in terms of like access to documents and access to information. And so we've been spending a lot of our time worrying about that and working on kind of the tooling to help IT teams and managers and executives get a better, better understanding of what's happening with the documents in order to prevent kind of bad things like leaks and, you know, uh, regulation being compromised uh, or compliance being compromised because of the, the way that people are using documents and who has access to them and things like that. So those are kind of some of the new layers of, of this problem that we've been exploring as we kind of uh, shifted this year. And so I guess the low light would be we had this aggressive idea that we can go get people to use our product and adopt it. And we had a feature set in mind for that. And that required us to get people using it, uh, it, it as teams and as entire companies, which we didn't have at the time yet in a big way. Uh, although the product has been spreading just organically inside of companies, because what happens is you see someone using it and you say, hey, what is that? Uh, or if someone finds a document, they're like, you found that document fast. And then kind of the word of mouth is spreading and it still is. Uh, and that was great. Uh, but we were building some features that would make it easier for teams to collaborate on these documents and things like that. And we kind of shut down those projects because uh, we had to put them on hold. Uh, so we went in, we, we had started them and then we had to put them on hold and then we had to figure out what to do next. And so I don't know if that's a low point uh, being an uh, entrepreneur for quite some time. Like I think I, I wouldn't say anything's a low point. I think Arjun can relate um, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Uh, it just is what it is. And you're just like knock, knocking it out as fast as you can, whatever the problem is. And, you know, the bigger the problem, the the the, the faster you try to fix it, to be honest, <laughs> you know, uh, which is not what most people would say. But yeah, it's a big problem, try to fix it faster. Uh, so this was kind of, you know, big problem. You know, we didn't, we, didn't, we need to figure out what we were going to do. And so we just basically started talking to different people in the organization. Uh, and, and then we discovered that there, there's needs that are different than what we were focused on at the time. And so we, we stopped pursuing a lot of those collaboration, sort of doubling down on collaboration and started focusing more on visibility and providing visibility into kind of what's happening with documents and the behavior, uh, less so around 
basically it's like finding them for a different reason mm. kind of thing right wow so sad and you know you mentioned something where you said it hasn't been been so many low lights just as a serial entrepreneur you know one theme i see a lot these days is that i see a, like kind of a crowd of founders that i like bring both ends of the candle they're done <laughs> like and then i see other founders who are working just as hard but you know they're somewhat grateful to be able to do what they do and somehow they're just powered with no sleep and probably just air and water maybe a few drinks i don't know but um you know how, how have you maintained kind of um your energies for the long run uh as as a founder as a serial founder who's been through you know multiple renditions in tech because the last 15 20 years <laughs> may as well be split into three eras you know yep um i i think like it, it's it, it's not a we focus so much on what's happening and what happened what what just happened or you know uh the events that are happening in the business whether it's like you know virus hits and like now you know our customers are focused on bigger problems or different problems and we have to go discover what those are if we're to survive and thrive um those kind of things are like really really tactical and if you can boil them down to their basic sort of principles first principles if you want to call it or get to five whys and root causes like those things are, are actually a blip on the radar of, of, of what, what actually are the meaningful milestones in a company, even though when you're in the middle of a big problem like that, you're like kind of stuck in it uh, until you get out of it. Uh, and like, you know, I mentioned that because like, I, I don't worry about any of that anymore. Uh, the thing I worry about is like, how, what is my reaction to these things? And how, how am I helping guide the team that needs to work on this if it's, you know, a larger organization and the team's working on it, or how am I getting help from other people to work on this problem or how am I delegating so that, you know, I'm not taking on the full burden of it if I don't have to. Right. So it's those kind of things that I'm worried about. So it's almost like bias towards action over even thinking too hard about, Oh, this happened or that happened or why did it happen or who did it or any of that. It's more like, okay, that happened. Great. Let's go find all the information we need to get to the next step, which is fix this thing, not, you know, anything else. And I think oftentimes you kind of wallow in why did it happen? What happened? in the middle of trying to fix something, <laughs> you're kind of thinking about why it happened and what happened and how to prevent it next time when it's like, hey, look, preventing something next time, I mean, this is one big problem I see founders do. Preventing the thing next time is not as important as solving the thing first, if, especially if it's a big problem. Just go solve it. Don't worry about preventing it. Because one of the weird things about a startup is just because you face that problem once doesn't mean you're going to face it again, unless you figure out what the commonality is and what you did and how you feel about it and what your contribution was to the problem, whether it's like ignorance or, you know, avoiding like something, some bias or, you know, whatever it is. And like, those are the patterns I look for. Those are the things I try to find in myself and even the people on the team, because, you know, in great part as, as the founder, but also the CEO, it's my job to pull people out of their funk. Right. And, and, and also identify it. And a lot of it isn't always just about what happened. It's more about your reaction to it and then kind of how you adjust as necessary. So at one point we had a bunch of pretty massive engineering issues um, that had to do with hiring and sort of uh, a lack of visibility on code and things like that by our head of engineering. And like, we just felt really bad about causing that problem. Cause like, once we realized it was a problem that was his area of responsibility. And like, 
he actually got in a funk, but I've worked with him for eight years. So I let him get in a funk for a day, not two weeks. Cause usually his timeline is about two weeks. And I kind of gave it to him straight, like, Hey, because of what we're working on and this exact moment, we as an organization do not have time for you to wallow in your shit. We just don't. So I'm going to pull you out of it right now and say, Hey, it's okay. It's all good. Let's figure out what to do next. And by the way, you already have half a plan, if not 90% of a plan. Can you just finish your plan off and just deal with that? Because you don't need to worry about this. It's not that big of a deal. And I think he's the type of person that takes takes it personally. And I don't even need to mention that it was his mistake. He's already on it, taking care of the solve and being self-aware enough to be like, yeah, I screwed up. Here's what I'm going to do. But internally, he's wallowing in it. And that's causing him to like just not make the best decisions because he's like, oh, I did it. How do I prevent it? How do I prevent it? But fixing it is more important than preventing it. And by fixing it, you generally will prevent the problem next time anyway. And I think this is, I know I'm in the weeds, but like this is a little nuance that like I don't think most founders appreciate, which is the fact that like you don't need to think about how you're going to prevent it. You're going to solve it. And then you can worry about what happened and how to prevent it in like a specific headspace that you're in that you can call a postmortem or a retrospective instead of trying to do it when you're still trying to deal with the problem and fix it. So if you have a major engineering problem and you have a personnel problem on engineering, you kind of need to replace all these people basically, or all the people that are kind of causing the problem if you notice that that's the problem. And for us, it was just a level of engineering uh, sort of uh, performance. Uh, We couldn't get out of the people on the team for the business that we were heading into. That was a real problem. The business we were in was fine, but the business we were heading into required a different caliber of engineers, basically. And so we, we needed to replace all of them. Thankfully, our, our head of engineering is that caliber. So it wasn't like we, we, we were completely lost, but we had to re- redo our recruiting process. We had to let go of everybody that kind of uh, carefully, everyone that was there uh, and let them know too, and then basically transition. And so there was a whole process. But again, if he didn't get out of his funk, we wouldn't just be two weeks delayed. We might've made all kinds of mistakes because his funk was all about how do I prevent this from happening? How, and it's not even exactly that. It's more like, how did this happen? And a lot of that you can say, oh, you need to figure out how it happened to prevent it or, or not prevent it, sorry, uh, make sure or fix it. And usually how it happened is less important to fixing it than how you're going to fix it, period, <laughs> right? And any context of how it happened to help fix it is great. But when you take the attitude of, what happened and trying to diagnose what happened to like a a great level of detail at a time when you actually need to fix the problem, you're actually kind of shooting yourself in the foot because you're likely to actually cause the same mistakes because that's just the headspace you're going to be in. Well, I I tend to go for like, hey, let's move forward. What's next? How do we fix it? Headspace, because that tends to be better. And then when we need to be in a review, what happened headspace, that's just a different model. That's when I believe we should be reviewing things when we're relaxed. Not, not where we're in, in the middle of an emergency where yeah. diagnosis is more important than analysis. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate that, like, relentless sense of urgency and forward-facing, you know, momentum that you you just, you know, shared with us so deeply and then creating the right space for when and where it's appropriate to review, reflect, analyze, understand, you know, but, but that kind of, you know, always in sixth gear reality of being a top-tier founder and pushing you know, the business forward towards the truth that you see um, or the customer, you know, pain that you're looking to solve is so powerful. There's also just a really good analogy. Do you want to be the news or do you want to be the firefighter? The news is worried about how it happened. Always. The firefighters are worried about 
making the fire go away, right? <laughs> stopping the fire, stopping it from spreading, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to be the news, dude. <laughs> I'm the firefighter, and our team is too in that context, right? Right, so, right. Yeah, yeah cool. and it, it's interesting as also because, you know, like when people are in panic or wallowing or in fear, right, and they're intelligent people, then they're really good at justifying <laughs> why their decision is actually a really good decision because they're yeah. so intelligent, but it's still like kind of fear retro retroactive. And and, okay. and I, I like what you say about pulling him out <laughs> and just saying, hey, <laughs> what's happening here? Let's, yeah, let's get it, on. It was, it was a little bit more. Uh, yeah, it was a little bit of like, yo, it's okay. Like, let's just not worry about it. Like, no, one's, you're good. Like, let, let's just go fix it. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Nice. I um I forgot what I was going to ask. Arjun, did you have something like? No, maybe just very quickly. Like, I know we're show. yeah. That was great. Thank you for for sharing all that <laughs> yeah, detail. It's very yeah, cool. I, I didn't know it was going to come out, but it came out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. And yeah, in the last you know just a couple of minutes that we've got, um, would love to better understand your in a little bit about your investing history. You know, you've invested in so many great companies. Um, you know, and I know. It's, it's hard to cover in a couple of minutes, but, you know, are you, maybe quickly, are you still investing today? And maybe what are some of your, you know, biggest investing lessons as an early stage sure. um, investor? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I invest sometimes. Uh, and I say that because I always try not to invest these days in things, but people keep sending me things and like, uh, you know, I have the means to invest in companies, uh, but I also like investing in my own companies. So I always have, and always have had that sort of, uh, issue. So, you know, and at the end of the year, it gets worse where it's like, oh yeah, I'm not going to invest next year. So if I say, if I say that I'm probably lying, so I'll start there. And then, you know, I, I think I went from somewhere in the 120 investments to 150 in the last like 18 months, maybe less. So I'm, I'm probably more active than some angels and, and, and even some fund managers. Uh, in, in a lot of cases, I, I write small checks though. Uh, lessons learned. Uh, I think early stage, nobody really knows if this business is going to be successful or not. And a lot of people lean on like, oh, the team and the founders and things like that. I think that's great. Uh, what, what I really look for is how does that person think? And do they have resilience or are they going to develop the resilience for the business? And there's a lot of different data points you could take for that, um, such as like, I ended up investing in uh, Clearbit and I was the first uh, check into the business. Uh, which, you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, he was going to get money from other people. I just have, it was just timely. And uh, Alex over there had worked on two or three different ideas that were small ideas after his time at Stripe and small in the sense of, I just personally didn't think they were matched to his abilities. He had written a whole book on JavaScript. He had built like certain parts of Stripe checkout, if not the whole thing early on, the, the little pop-up stuff there. He was basically, for lack of a better word, at that time considered one of the experts in JavaScript. I would say, I mean, he wrote a book on it, right? And he built some of the JavaScript that was running on a lot of sites at that time too, and probably still does. And so I'm sure some of his code is still running over at Stripe even after so many years. And um, basically he left and he was working on ideas and then he landed on this one and we were over at Cyclass and SF and we were just talking uh, and he's like, hey, I got this one and I think I'm gonna raise money for it. And I'm like, yeah, like I'll write a check like right now because I like the idea and I think it maps to you. And the reason is like, it, it was just something where when he started talking about it, I could just connect the dots without him saying too much about like what he was going to do next and what, what the potential of that business was just because of the way he talked about it without him having to say a lot about what it actually was going to end up being exactly or having even a great idea of that because the idea was good. 
and he was the right person to go pursue it. Uh, and I think that that's what I look for uh, is some version of that resilience that I saw from him and that self-awareness of knowing that the other ideas weren't as good and weren't like worthy of raising money. It wasn't like that sized idea. And the one that he was working on now, which is the business that Clearbit is in, uh, was the thing that he wanted to pursue. And again, it was like quick convo. And he was one of the many people that I met multiple times. Uh, nothing, nothing super special about our relationship or anything like that in particular. Uh, it was just very much timing. So I think timing has a lot to do with it. Um, another good example where I didn't invest, but didn't really even think of asking, and I don't think we discussed it, was when Ryan Graves uh, over at, uh, was joining Uber. Uh, uh, I think he reached out to me and he just wanted some thoughts and wanted to tell me about the new thing he was doing. Uh, and so we, we, we talked about it. We met at, I think it was uh, Sam of RT uh, over in SF. And he was just telling me about the weird company uh, that he's joining uh, and, and what they do. And in, in my case, like I, I didn't have contextual awareness at the time of that, like, look, I might not go out and these black cars might be a thing for other people. I, I actually had friends that were really into the black cars and kind of the early Uber days and just didn't have enough context. So these days, I think a big lesson from then was like, there, there are some opportunities where like the markets are just really big. And it's just, even if, even if the company starts with a small idea, there's a lot of opportunity if the people who are running it are always in the mode of basically discovering and exploiting opportunities. Uh, and that's what Uber is. It's a company that has been fantastic at discovering and exploiting new opportunities in very challenging markets. And so that's my sort of random, I missed on Uber story. I don't think we talked about funding or anything. So I, I'm not going to say, hey, he offered it. And I said, no, uh, but I'm sure if I asked, he would have tried to help me kind of get in on that round, right? Um, and I have no regrets or anything like that. It was just awesome that I was asked to meet with him by him at a time when like he wanted to talk about it and he wasn't the person he is today um, after all those years at Uber. And I think that kind of stuff like is, is one of the things that I love about investing is like you get to meet these people, whether you invest or not, and they're, they go on to do all these crazy things. And you're like, hey, I knew that person before they became that crazy person that did all these fantastic things, right? Uh, so uh, yeah, I, I don't have a lot of lessons except I think the big one for me was like being able to contextualize something that you might not understand and be able to understand the customer and the use cases and, and how the founders think about all that, I think is a really important skill set for any, any, anybody who's considering investing. Uh, contextualize things that might not be in your wheelhouse and figure out how to assess those things uh, objectively. And the best investors at every stage that I've seen, early stage or even much later stage, they're able to do that.